the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar, faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistlings from the flocks, or for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meros, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to help or to the help of the Lord. To the help of the Lord. Against the mighty. Thus far, our reading at this point, beloved. Let us now sing together in preparation for this morning. Judges chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 and going on to verse 16. We read there, beloved, the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, 
who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up with him at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananiam, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth, Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Thus far... Our reading thus far, beloved. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can often forget just how surprising God's plan of salvation has been up to this point. Particularly if you have grown up hearing the Bible stories. The events of Scripture can be so familiar that we are rarely as shocked as we ought to be. Consider that Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. After being expelled from the Garden of Eden... And the first time, reader might expect that things will now start to to look up. But then Cain 
kills his righteous brother. And reminds us in a a brutal fashion just how far humanity had fallen into sin. After that, humanity grows and expands for generations. But their wickedness and sin becomes so great that God wipes all of them out with a mighty flood with the exception of one man and his family. Later still, God comes to Abraham and tells him that he will make him into a mighty nation. But he waits until Abraham is 100 years old before he finally gives him his promised heir, Isaac, through his wife Sarah. And then Isaac himself has only two sons, Esau and Jacob. And against all expectation, the the younger of the two ends up being the one who gets both the, the birthright and the blessing, which would have ordinarily been given to the older. Uh, Throughout the Bible, beloved, we see that God seems to delight in overturning human expectations and accomplishing his plan of salvation in surprising ways. It's a reminder to us that he is God and he can do whatever he likes, whenever he likes. And as believers living today in eager expectation for the day when God will bring his plan of salvation to completion, well, we ought to be encouraged and inspired by the fact that God doesn't just use the people or the opportunities or the situations that we might expect to further that plan. It's something we'll also be reminded of today. So we read from Judges 4 and also look at parts of Judges 5. Here we read of Deborah and Barak. In narrative and song, we read of an unexpected judge who served her people in a time of great trial. And we hear of a a great victory being given to God's people in defiance of all human expectations. And in all this, beloved, we are ultimately being reminded of our unexpected judge, Jesus Christ. Reminded of the unexpected victory that he won over the forces of darkness. The victory which assures our own final victory in the end. Beloved, I proclaim God's word as it comes to us in Judges 4, the verses 1 to 16, using this theme. God accomplishes his plan of salvation in defiance of human expectations. And we'll see this first in an unexpected judge and second in an unexpected victory. Beloved, following the death of the judge Ehud, the Israelites once again did what was evil In the sight of the Lord. They abandoned their covenant obligations. And so God withheld his covenant blessings. In response to their abandonment of God's law. 
God abandoned them and he sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, the city is significant because Hazor was in the, the northern part of the promised land. And in times past, it had been one of the most prominent Canaanite cities. And during the, the conquest of the promised land under Joshua, this city had been completely destroyed with fire. But now we find out that it has since been rebuilt and resettled by the Canaanites. Hazor's resurgent power is a a graphic reminder, a message to the people of Israel that if they fail to be faithful to God, they will never truly obtain their promised inheritance. As long as their faithfulness to God and His expectations are compromised, their control of the promised land would be compromised as well. However, while Hazor's return to power might have been a thorn in Israel's side, the lash across Israel's back was being delivered by the commander of Jabin's army, a man named Sisera, who was based in Herosheth Hagoyim, or Herosheth of the Gentiles, as it might be translated a city that was slightly to the southwest of Hazor. There in the the lowlands, where Herosheth was located, Sisera could easily deploy his most powerful weapons, his 900 chariots of iron, or perhaps 900 chariots with iron-rimmed wheels. These chariots, they represented the the height or the pinnacle of military technology at this time. If you had a chariot, you had unparalleled speed, allowing you to race back and forth across the battlefield, harassing your opponents. And the sound and sight of the chariots was terrifying to unprepared troops who would often run at the sight of them. And Sisera, in particular, seems to have been very effective in using his chariots to to keep the Israelites out of the lowland plains and forcing them to live exclusively in the highlands or the hill country of Galilee and Judea. See, in song, we are told at this time, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. This is telling us that the people were so afraid of Sisera and his men that they weren't willing to go on the main roads that all traveled through the lowlands. And instead, they kept to the rockier, more hilly mountain paths found in the hill country. And furthermore, we are also told in song that the villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I, that is Deborah, arose. And here you need to understand that the villagers refer specifically to to people who lived in open settlements or villages that didn't have any walls. See, faced with Sisera's chariots, these villagers had no choice but to abandon their homes and flee to more secure living places. 
This is just part of the way that Sisera then cruelly oppressed God's people for 20 years. Now, during this time, the Israelites had not been completely abandoned by the Lord. We are told, for instance, that Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Now, prophetesses were rare, but they do appear a few times in the Old Testament. We're told in Exodus 15 that Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and that was following the crossing of the Red Sea. In 2 Kings 22, verse 14, you can read of a a delegation that was sent from King Josiah to inquire of the Lord through Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. And she gave them a message from the Lord. And in Isaiah 8, you can read the prophet there reveal that he was married to a prophetess, who conceived and born him a son. Now in the New Testament, we no longer read of prophetesses. But we do know of some women who were given the gift of prophecy. We are told that Philip the Evangelist, one of the original seven deacons, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And the Apostle Paul clearly knew of women who had the prophetic gift because he gave specific instructions that every wife or woman who prophesies should do so with her head covered. And he commanded that they not prophesy inside the churches, that is, during the assemblies for worship. And I mention a lot of these details about prophetesses and prophecy, beloved, because There are some today who use Deborah as evidence for the idea that women should serve as ministers of the word or as elders. But the role of prophetess or the gift of prophecy doesn't mean that someone should have such a role in the churches. As I just mentioned, Paul knew of women who had these gifts, but he never placed them in the office of elder He never expected them to be speaking in the assemblies. And so we then, in order to be faithful, the New Testament, to recognize that there are other ways for women to exercise such gifts. See, while the Old Testament prophetesses Deborah and Huldah brought to the people the word of the Lord, the gift of prophecy in the New Testament isn't so much concerned with giving someone new divine revelation. Instead, in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul notes, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And so we should expect that there will be women today who will have a gift for building others up, for encouraging them. And they should use and develop such God-given gifts. But we should acknowledge that such gifts aren't meant for the worship services. Now the fact that Deborah is described as a prophetess is perhaps less surprising than the fact that she was judging Israel. We're told that she used to sit under the palm of Deborah 
presumably named after her, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. You might say the fact that the people had to come to her is further evidence of how Israel had been following or falling away from God's law. For in Deuteronomy 16, 18, the the people have been told, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgments. And so usually the, the task of rendering judgments would have fallen upon the elders, the senior men in the local towns, But they seem to have failed to step out and carry out this task. And so many people from the different tribes were seeking out Deborah in place of their failure. Now furthermore, we might note that unlike the other judges described in this book, Deborah was a woman. And in keeping with her gender, Deborah was also not a warrior or a direct military leader. And she did not directly participate in the battle against Sisera. And this does set her apart from all the other judges in this book who all primarily served as warriors or soldiers for the Lord. And because of this, some occasionally wonder whether it's right to consider Deborah a judge. Or whether we might perhaps say that the judge in this section is technically Barak. However, in other ways, Deborah is perhaps more deserving of the title of judge than any of the men who ever held that position. Deborah is the only judge in this book who explicitly carried out a judicial role, who decided matters for the benefit of the people. And furthermore, while it's certainly implied that the other judges led the people back to the exclusive worship of the Lord, Deborah is the only one who delivers the words of the Lord directly to the people as a prophetess. And finally, we might note that while Deborah was not personally a warrior or a general, she did command the respect or obedience of those who were because of her service to the Lord. We see this clearly when she summons Barak, the son of Obinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali to appear before her. Because Barak would have had to travel then about 110 kilometers on foot over hilly terrain just to see her. But comes, but come he does nonetheless. And so, in many ways, beloved... You might recognize that Deborah was a more accurate foreshadowing of the great judge, Jesus Christ, than any of the other judges who served in Israel. She led the people by speaking the word of the Lord, just as Jesus came speaking the words which the Father had given to him. Deborah judged between the people in order that they might experience justice. While Christ came rebuking the teachers of the law and the scribes because they had neglected the weightier matters of the law, that is, justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
Deborah was a leader, though she did not wield a weapon on a field of battle, pointing in a small way to the Messiah who would not wage war during his earthly ministry against earthly enemies or nations. In complete defiance of the expectations of the Jews of the New Testament. We might say that Deborah was an anomaly, an unexpected judge in many ways. But the way God used her to further his plan of salvation foreshadowed the coming of Jesus Christ. Because Christ has secured our salvation. He has served as the cornerstone of God's plan for us. Despite not being what God's people expected at all when he appeared. He was a servant and a teacher when they wanted a warrior and a king. He was not what they expected. But he was and is what they and we truly need. As followers, beloved, of the Lamb of God, the line of Judah who surrendered himself to death for our benefit, we should expect the unexpected. We should realize that God can use anyone to bring glory and honor to his holy name. We should recognize that whether someone is male or female, young or old, healthy or sick, blessed with a doctorate or a high school education, strong as an ox or weak as a kitten, God can use them to build us up as members of his church. God can use them to advance his plan of salvation. We might consider that simply because women are not permitted to teach or exercise authority over a man in the context of church or worship, does not mean that men can ignore all the knowledge given to women. In the New Testament, we're told of Apollos, an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, who had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And yet he had to learn from both Priscilla and Aquila, a wife and husband team, the way of God more accurately. The old are not allowed to assume that those younger than them have nothing to teach them. Paul told Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers, all the believers, an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Those with advanced education should not assume that someone with less academic training has nothing to teach them. Paul tells us, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Beloved, God does not only use the strong, the well-instructed. God doesn't always use the people we might expect to be training us, equipping us, and strengthening us for his service. We have an unexpected Savior. And we are also helped by the power of the Holy Spirit 
through unexpected brothers and sisters. This brings us to our second point about an unexpected victory. Now, beloved, we don't know much about the other figure in this biblical account, that of Barak. His home city of Kadesh was one of the cities given to the tribe of Levi. And so Barak was most likely a Levite, but that isn't certain. What is certain is that he was a military leader. Deborah says to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. We might note here the tribes mentioned are not selected at random. Naphtali and Zebulun had both received their inheritances in the region around that city of Hazor. They were the ones who would have experienced the oppressions of Sisera firsthand. It's perhaps interesting to consider that historically these two tribes had both experienced some success but did not completely claim their inheritances or be completely faithful to the Lord. In Judges 1, we read that both Naphtali and Zebulun had driven out many of the inhabitants in their area, but they had also forced many of these people to become subject to forced labor. And so they hadn't been completely faithful in that calling to drive out the Canaanites completely. And you might say in our text, we begin to see then the result of that failure. Their compromising has come back to bite them. But God, you might say, is willing to give them a chance to redeem themselves, in a sense. Speaking on behalf of the Lord, Deborah prophesies, And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. So God promises Barak a a complete victory. But Barak isn't confident in this. He lacks the, the complete and total faith in the word of the Lord that he is to have. And so instead he says to Deborah, a woman who we can safely assume has no military expertise or experience, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. We must understand here that most likely Barak wants to to use Deborah as a kind of divine good luck charm. He recognizes her close relationship to the Lord, And so he's thinking, if she's with me, it's more likely that I'm going to be successful. You can read of the the same kind of thinking if you go to the book of 1 Samuel, and you read there of the time that the Israelites took the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle, and they carried it into battle against the Philistines, falsely assuming that God would never allow his Ark to be taken by uncircumcised pagans. Now, Barak's request for Deborah to go with him wasn't quite as blatantly offensive to the holiness of the Lord. But it does testify to his having doubts. And that has consequences. 
He has still promised the victory, but he is told that he won't gain the glory. Deborah tells him, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And in the way, his lack of faith, you might say, it only meets with a mild rebuke. It's not that he's told that he will now fail in his endeavors. But in many ways, you might say, this one moment has defined Barak for all coming generations. Everyone who has read God's word tends to remember Barak as that guy who wouldn't go to war without a woman to back him up. In a way, you might say, that's a shame. Because while Barak was wrong in asking for Deborah to join him, he was still a man of considerable faith. It might have been lacking in certain ways. But it wouldn't be fair, beloved, to to judge Barak as a chicken or a coward. Barak might not be particularly confident, but he had his reasons for that. As he sings later on with Deborah, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? They're pointing out that, that proper weapons of war had become scarce. Well, Sisera, he had 900 of the best weapon systems available at that time. And we might recognize that the the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were risking it all. As Deborah and Barak sing, Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali too, on the heights of the field. Barak recognized full well that if he failed in this assault, Jabin and Sisera would have their revenge. Now, along with the the 10,000 men from those two tribes, we are told in song that there were also some men from the tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, Makir, that is the half-tribe of Manasseh that lived on the west side of the Jordan, and the tribe of Issachar that went along with them. But Judges 4 makes it pretty clear that the the 10,000 from Zebulun and Naphtali certainly formed the bulk of of Barak's army. And we also are told that some tribes were basically too afraid to show up at all. Reuben, Gilead, the other half-tribe of Manasseh on the east of the Jordan, Dan and Asher are all rebuked in song because they fail to contribute and help out their brothers. And that points to the terror they had for Sisera. And finally, beloved, it's also important to to note how the campaign against Sisera plays out. With Deborah beside him, Barak goes up to Kadesh, his home city. And there he calls out the men of Zebulun and Naphtali, and he leads them to Mount Tabor. And this mountain is kind of an isolated hill rising out of the plain. And it would have given Barak a a position where the chariots couldn't really get to him. Chariots aren't really so good on going up hills. But Barak doesn't get to stay and fight in that place, even though it would seem to be the best position. 
No, while Sisera is advancing towards him, on the lowlands, with all of his troops, Deborah tells Barak, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Deborah is telling Barak to go down the mountain, advance onto the plain. Barak is going to go on the offensive, despite the fact that he will now be fighting in the place where Sisera's chariots will be at their most effective. But Barak goes out, and he does it. Because for all his prior weaknesses, he was a man of faith. We see this acknowledged later on in the New Testament. He's one of the the figures included in the well-known list of heroes of Hebrews 11. There you can read in the verses 32 to 34. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies or armies to flight. And I believe that in all of this, beloved, we might be encouraged Encouraged by the knowledge that even though we may not, at times, always be strong in faith, that doesn't mean God abandons us, or that God won't use us for his glory. Doesn't mean we won't enjoy the victory that comes from God's hands. We shouldn't glorify Barak's weaknesses or the rebuke that he received. But we may be comforted with the knowledge that despite our own, at times, lack of perfect faith, God will not abandon us. For he is not a God who treats us as we deserve. He does not treat us in correspondence with the measure of our faith. But he grants us his boundless love and mercy. Faith as small as a mustard seed might move mountains, might certainly secure our salvation by God's grace. The Lord graphically demonstrates to Barak why he was right to place his faith in him. We are told that the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And in song we receive even more details concerning this. We're told, for instance, from heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. Here it's important to note that stars are associated in Scripture with the angelic hosts, which is under God's command. It's an indirect way of saying that God was giving his people the victory through his servants. We read as well that the torrent Kishon swept them that is, the Canaanites, away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon. Now here it's perhaps useful to note that the Kishon is not ordinarily or usually a torrential or treacherous river. 
And so scholars have generally seen in this an implication that at this time, God brought on a storm. He brought on rains. So that the Kishon flooded at an opportune moment and swept away, or at least made the ground muddy for Sisera and his troops. This is also supported by a line that goes, Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. It's often seen to imply that the Canaanites had to cut the horses loose from their chariots, and they had to flee, lest they become stuck in the mud. As a result of the Lord's favor, Barak and his men would achieve a crushing victory. They would pursue those chariots and the men who were with them. Cut all of them down so that not a man was left. Outclassed, but trusting in the Lord. They overcame their longtime oppressors and they received from the Lord a great unexpected victory. See, beloved, the victory will always be the Lord's. But we might consider that the manner in which we respond to his promises will impact what role we play in that victory. We can note, for instance, the way that Deborah and Barak praise the tribes who helped them, but shame those who did not. We are to remember, beloved, at all times that God will win the final victory. In his son, Jesus Christ, he has crushed Satan and the forces of darkness, and so his victory is assured. The war may not be over. Strife and trials still surround us and await us. But Christ has already won the decisive battle upon the cross. And so we must consider, in response to that great victory, one on our behalf, how will we serve our Lord and Savior while we await the complete victory, the final one? Will we bow to the social pressures of this world to conform to their standards and expectations? Will we abandon the standards of God's word and embrace the morals and expectations of our culture so that they might accept us or leave us alone? Or will we by faith risk the wrath of the nations? Confident that true victory is found in God alone. Well, we remember that simply because the odds might not appear to be in our favor at this time. When it might seem like politicians or others in authority over us are against us. Well, we remember that victory is in God's hands and in God's control. Let us be confident, beloved. And if we put our faith, our hope... In the God who loves us, victory will certainly be ours in the end. One day, Christ will return in triumph. And on that day, he will acknowledge, as his brothers and friends, those who have been faithful, those who have overcome. Many will be surprised at his unexpected arrival. 
But for those of us who are looking forward to it, eagerly longing for it, on that day we will have great reason to rejoice. Amen. Beloved, let us now sing.